we're in business. Uh, finish my funny story. Last Saturday, I did a wedding. I officiated a wedding. And uh, the person gave me the pack, you know. person gave me the, the sound pack. And th- this is what sound people do all the time. They say, don't touch the sound pack. It's everything, you know, it's already set. You don't have to touch it. We'll turn you off from the back. Don't worry about it. And uh, I don't know how many times I put on one of these headsets. And they, you know, they always tell you that don't touch the thing. Just, you know, we'll do it from the back. Well, sure enough, the people, it's an outdoor wedding, and the people come, you know, the, the, the groom and the bride are there, and they're two feet in front of my face, you know, and I start speaking, you know, who gives this woman to be married, and there's no sound, and I'm like looking, trying to be like, there's no light, it's, it's not on. And they can't turn me off from back there. It's not, it's not working. Well, you don't pause in the middle of a wedding to take care of that. So what, I, what do I do? I project. If you know, I can, I can speak loud. I can project. The problem is these poor, these poor people <laughs> are two feet. They're two feet from my voice. So the entire, the entire, I'm trying to project so that everybody can hear. And they're just getting bombarded with the annoying sound of my voice. So I feel bad. And I'm glad that I don't have to shout. It, it, I can fill up the room with my voice. But that high voice, right, gets really annoying. And, and uh, I don't want to bombard you that way. So um, I do get loud sometimes. Sometimes people, you know, I've heard, have had kids come and ask me or they ask their parents, why are you, why are you mad? Why, why is Pastor Paul always mad? I'm not mad. I can, I can get mad. Don't, don't, you know, I, I, I'm a sinner like anyone else. But I, I'm not mad. I'm just excited. I get excited. And sometimes I lose myself a little bit. I get a little bit wound up. But we're glad to be here this morning. Thank you, Jeremy, for leading us in announcements and leading us in liturgy. Uh, this morning, we're looking forward to and excited about our equipping classes today and uh, starting off the semester. The beginning of the semester is really exciting, and uh, so we are looking forward to all of that. We also begin today a new series. We begin a new series, uh, and here at Trinity Church, we typically go through books of the Bible. Uh, that's what forms our series. We choose a book and, and go through that book of the Bible, um, and We have chosen for this semester to go through the book of Genesis. Genesis, particularly chapters 1 through 11. That's what will be the focus, Lord willing, of our next 12 weeks or so until we get to Advent. Can you believe, can you believe Advent season, Christmas season is only 12 weeks away? Can you believe that? Unbelievable. How, how, how in the world does time go by so fast? But that's where we're at again. And so, uh, 12 weeks, we'll be sit, uh, sitting here in Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, Lord willing, and then we will go to Advent. So, if you will, turn your Bibles. And if you're new to church and new to the Bible, you picked a good week to start because this, this is really easy to find. It's the first page, not the preface and the introduction and all that stuff. It's the first page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So, if you please join me. Please join me in standing. We're going to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Here is what God says in His Word. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Seven words in the Hebrew tongue. Seven words in Hebrew form the first sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ten words in our English language. These seven Hebrew words not only begin the book of Genesis, a book of the Bible, they not only begin the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, not merely do they begin the Old Testament, all 39 books of the, New Te- or the Old Testament, or merely begin the Bible itself. These are the words, the seven words that begin all of Scripture. These seven words not only begin the Bible, but these seven words give to us, very important, the beginning of the universe. The beginning of everything. The beginning of all that is. Both visible and invisible. By extension, the beginning of the world that we inhabit. The beginning of all. However, there is one that is accepted from this beginning. We find him here in our beginning. The beginning of the material universe. We find him already existing here in our beginning. Genesis 1.1 does not give us the beginning of God. God is not part of the story of the universe. God is not part of the story of the world. God is not part of the story of you and me. God is not part of our story, but get this, this is very important. We are part of His. This story, God's story, should stand to define ours. Here's what I mean by that. You and I cannot understand life the world, meaning, anything. You and I can't have any hope of understanding anything rightly without first understanding God. He defines everything. This is reality. The story of everything is about God and His glory. And this, this is what he wants us to know first. That is why 
the book begins this way. This is the first thing he wants us to know. In order for God to reveal to us his creation, what all of his creation is about, he has chosen to reveal this to us in a book, the Bible. And he has started this book with the book of Genesis. And he has started the book of Genesis with these seven Hebrew words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so, for us, if we are to understand life, if we are to understand meaning, if we are to understand what God wants, we've got to start here. And the book of Genesis does just that. It gives us this perfect knowledge, this knowledge of God and what he is doing that will absolutely, and I, I cannot overstate this, if you will understand what the book of Genesis is teaching you, it will radically transform your life, everything about your life. It is not just a fun book full of stories that we can tell our children about a boat full of animals and a family. Joseph, a coat of many colors. No, this this book is far more important than that. This book begins the story that God wants us so desperately to know and understand. Now, and this is, this is kind of funny, I planned on giving you a brief, chuckle, chuckle, a brief overview of the book of Genesis. As I started, I even have that typed right here. Let, let me give you just a brief overview of the story of Genesis. And then as I started writing, I said, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to give you an overview of the book of Genesis and then uh, we, we'll, we'll start breaking down the passage, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, next week. I want you to understand the book of Genesis. I want to give you the big picture view, the, the 30,000 foot view, if you will, of the book of Genesis. And this, this overview begins with structure. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't know this. Every book of the Bible has a structure, a discernible outline. And if you're going to understand a book of the Bible, if you come to a book of the Bible, if you're going to understand it, you need to start with how has the author presented it? How has the author outlined it? How has the author structured it? There are several books where that outline and structure is, is hard to find or maybe discern or takes, takes some work. And sometimes the structure is clear. Here in the book of Genesis, the structure is very clear. The structure of Genesis is shaped around ten toledoth. T-O-L-E D-O-T-H. You're going to transliterate it there. This word, toledot, can be translated generation or generations. So Genesis 
is the book of generations. You could say it in our vernacular, you could say it is a book of family histories. I'll quickly list for you these Toledoth passages, these ten marked passages. (coughs) Chapter 2, if you want to write this down, you can. If you want to go back and look, I'm not going to turn to each one. Chapter 2, verse 4. marks the history of the heavens and the earth. I'll read verse 4 for you in chapter 2. It starts off, These are the generations, the Toledot. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So chapter 2, verse 4, marks the history of the heavens and the earth. Chapter 5, verse 1, marks the family history of Adam. Family history of Adam. Chapter 6, verse 9, marks the family history of Noah. 6, verse 9, family history of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1, marks the family history of Noah's sons. Chapter 11, verse 10, marks the family history of Shem. Chapter 11, verse 27, Marks the family history of Terah. Terah is the father of Abram. So chapter 11, verse 27, marks the family history of Terah. Chapter 25, verse 12. Notice there's a big gap there between chapter 11 and chapter 25. That means that what happens there is pretty significant. Okay, Chapter 25, verse 12, marks the family history of Ishmael, chapter 25, verse 12, marks the family history of Ishmael, which is followed then, chapter 25, verse 19, by the family history of Isaac. Chapter 36, verse 1, then marks the family history of Esau. And the last, the last of these Toledot is found in chapter 37, verse 2 marks the family history of Jacob. Five of these Toledo, five of these family histories are followed by extensive narrative. I kind of just implied that a second ago. Five of these Toledo, five of these important structural pieces are followed by extensive narrative. Five, the other five, are simply, very, very few narrative details, are simply genealogies. So the structure of Genesis is about family histories. And the narrative is purposefully, intentionally placed... To draw attention to the events and details of particular people, a particular family, and the events that take place in their life. What is the point, meaning of this structure? Did you know the authors give structure to the books that they write for a reason? There is meaning found in structure. The structure implies a meaning. What is the meaning of the structure given to Genesis? Here it is. 
the author of Genesis is making a theological point with this structure. He's making a theological point concerning the line of redemption. The line of redemption. He is marking off. He is identifying the family line through which the promises of redemption will come. He's marking off the family line through which the promises of redemption will come. Here at the very beginning, here at the very beginning, we find that important to this story is identifying who God's people are very clearly. This this people that God has given his promises to and he will fulfill them. He will keep them. The book of Genesis then is structured around family lines. And singles out, singles out the line through which redemption, the promise of redemption and salvation will come. Now I want you to, for just a moment, consider the shape of these family lines. And what I mean by that is this. In the first 11 chapters, 11 chapters, the book of Genesis covers the entire or the all of human history for all mankind in 11 chapters. 11 chapters covers 20 generations. fact there's more human history found in those first 11 chapters than the rest of the bible it's immense over 20 generations perhaps depending on how you consider it so in, in 11 chapters you have this very quick summary of all of human history of ancient human history and then for the last 39 chapters The author focuses on three generations. So the first 11 chapters, you have over 20, perhaps, generations. And then the last 39 chapters, you have three generations covered. What's the point? Again, structure implies meaning, okay? There's a reason he spends so much time, 39 chapters, focusing. The weighting of the material teaches us. The origin of all of humanity is given in 11 chapters, but the origin of God's people is given in 39 chapters. The creation of the universe, get this, the creation of the universe, kind of a big deal, don't you think? The creation of the universe takes place in two chapters. Two chapters. All that God wants us to know about the beginning of the universe in two chapters. Now, this is not what we would want. If you and I were writing the book, you know what we would do? Here's what we would do. We would spend like 49 chapters on creation. Like, you got to give me all the details of everything that happened at the creation of the universe, right? Our scientific minds demand a lot, right? How much energy and how much time is spent 
debating, questioning. Now these first two chapters, don't hear me saying that they are not so central, so foundational. They absolutely are. In fact, I would say the first two chapters give us the foundation. And yet, the focus of the author is on identifying who God's people are and how God is going to bring about his promises. We, we the scientific right, age that we live in, we, we want more information. God wants us to know what he gives us there in two chapters. And he, we'll, we'll return to this next week, He wants us to receive his word as it is. We we don't need more information than we have in the first two chapters. We don't need more. In fact, it's it's that craving for more, that dissatisfaction with how God has revealed this creation account. That really implies and and tells us how much we think of ourselves. God has given us all he wants us to know. And, And the author here, the inspired author here of Genesis, focuses all this attention on Abraham and his family. And yet, you and I seem to just skip past all that. Here is the focus of the book of Genesis. The author puts his focus on this truth. And and if you want, this could be the main idea of the sermon today. Here is where the author puts his focus. The focus of the book of Genesis is on the gracious initiative of God. The gracious initiative of God. To reveal his glory and the salvation of his people. The gracious initiative of God to reveal his glory and the salvation of his people. This is the focus of the book of Genesis. Again, consider this theme of redemption, salvation of his people. The story of the Bible, we've said this often, the story of the Bible can be told in four stages. Remember what those four stages are? The story of scripture. I've said this before, a lot of times I... I will ask my students in hermeneutics or in uh, studying and teaching the Bible to give me one of the 20 most important events in the Bible. And I'll give you the first one, creation. The last one, recreation or consummation, restoration, right? I'll give you the, the bookends, but you have to tell me the 18 middle ones. But we can actually summarize all the Bible in four words. Creation. Fall. Redemption. Recreation or restoration, consummation. Four words. Consider this for a moment. Creation. As we've already said, how many chapters take up the account of creation? Two. Two. Fall. 
How many chapters take up the fall of man, man's sin, and explanation for the sin of mankind? One. And if you wanted to draw it out, maybe you could say chapters 3 through verse 11 really recounts and tells the story of man's downfall. Recreation, consummation, how many chapters does that take? Two. The last two of the Bible. So get this. From chapter 4, or if you wanted to be generous with the fall, right? From chapters 12 of Genesis, all the way to Revelation chapter 20, the story is about redemption. That's the story of the Bible. Redemption. And that story of redemption, God's gracious initiative to reveal His glory in the salvation, the redemption of His people, that story of redemption begins here in Genesis. And it, that story practically screams out at you as you read the story. Now around that theme of redemption shapes itself around three, I'm going to give you only three, three themes, okay? Three themes. Three themes that shape this story of redemption. The first theme is the theme of blessing. Blessing. When God creates Adam and Eve, He blesses them. This theme of blessing shows us God's intent to bless His creation and mankind whom he's created to oversee, overrule, oversee and have dominion over his creation. God's intent is to bless his creation through the oversight and dominion of mankind. He wants to bless them and he wants to bless his creation. However, as man sins and rejects God's blessing, they exchange God's blessing for curse. As man sins and rejects God's blessing for curse, God, this is important, God is undeterred in his intent to bless mankind on the face of the earth, to bring them blessing. He will bless And this promise of blessing centers on a family, the family of Abraham. The first word to Abraham in chapter 12 is a word of blessing. The last word to Abraham in chapter 22 is a word of blessing. He is determined to bless them. He gives them promises of blessing. Jacob. The first word to Jacob is a word of promise. And the last word to Jacob is a word of promise. In fact, four times, four times in the book of Genesis, God appears in a theophany. God appears to Jacob in the book of Genesis four times. Do you remember who Jacob is? 
Do you remember how deceitful and conniving and worthless Jacob is? I, you know, you know this, this, is a, this, is a little bit of a, this is a little bit of a soapbox. I don't understand. Just sometimes, sometimes, you know, people name their sons Jacob. Jacob's not here, is he? Jacob. <laughs> Jacob is bull. Sometimes parents name their kids Jacob. And I'm like, have you, have you read? Or, 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 you know, other Judah. Sometimes you name your kids Judah. Don't, don't get offended at me. Four times God appears to Jacob. And do you know in each one of those, do you know what God does in each one of the four times God appears to Jacob? And he doesn't tell Jacob how terrible he is. He doesn't tell Jacob how worthless he is. He doesn't spend his time reminding Jacob of all his failures. No, four times he appears to Jacob. And in each one of those appearances, you know what he's doing? He's reassuring Jacob of his promises. Jacob is unworthy. And yet God is going to bless him because he's promised. This promise of blessing is connected to the promise of seed. Seed. Descendants. Again, the book of Genesis is a book about family histories, descendants, genealogies. God promises to bless a family that he promises a seed to. Tells Abraham, I will bless you, I will give you a seed. This promise goes back to the command in the creation account. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Again, man in his sin and his rejection of God's blessing experiences curse, but God isn't deterred. And so God tells the woman, remember Genesis 3? And we'll get there. We're going to spend more time with this. But he tells the woman, he promises the woman a seed, a seed that will crush the head of the enemy, crush the head of the serpent. A promise that the seed of the woman will provide the answer for man's fallen state. The seed of the woman will bring salvation and redemption for God's people. Even here in the book of Genesis, this book of beginnings, even here in this book about the beginning, we see that the focus is firmly fixed on the end. The book of Genesis isn't just merely a book about the beginning, it's a book about the end. Where everything is going, where God is taking everything. The focus is on the victory of the seed of the woman. And this victory we find out as we trace the story. As we trace the story through Genesis. It is a story about seed and about the preservation of that seed, of that line. Remember, Cain kills Abel, threatens the seed, and God provides Seth. 
through Seth then comes Noah. Through Noah, Shem. Through Shem, Abraham. And there's this narrowing down and narrowing down and narrowing down and narrowing down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And then Jacob to Judah. The promise of the seed of the woman will come through Judah. And as we follow this storyline all the way through the Bible, we find that the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman finds its culmination in the man who comes. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the one who gains the victory over the serpent. Jesus is the one who is our mighty victor. Jesus is the one anticipated in Genesis. Now you cannot overstate, you cannot overstate the drama of Genesis and the story of Scripture. You cannot overstate its drama. This is why I get excited. Because you understand it, you see it. The, great, the, the, the whole story of Scripture is this great battle waged between the seed of Satan and the seed of God's people. There is enmity between them. This is, this is why people, I think, think the Bible is boring. That's why I think people think the Bible is boring. They don't understand what's actually going on. Some people think that the Bible is an index of topics to look up for advice on different subjects. The Bible had some good advice for you. No, the Bible is not an index to look up your favorite subjects. Or to really help you out in a pinch whenever you need some advice on something. The Bible is a story. A unified story. It's not merely a moral guide. And I, I used to hear this all the time. You know, the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. When I hear things like that, I, I am grieved in my heart because that is what a lot of people think the Bible is. The Bible, the Bible is so much more than that. The Bible tells us of this war, this great war. There is a great war being waged even right now. There's a great war being waged even right now. It is a fantastic war between the seed of Satan and the seed of promise, the people of promise. The pages of Scripture detail this great war still ongoing, by the way. On every page, the gracious initiative of God to reveal His glory through His salvation, the salvation of His people. This, this promise is under threat on every page of Scripture. Every page of Scripture details for us how the enemy seeks to destroy the seed of promise. Destroy God's people. And bring the promises of God to an end. On every page, the drama could not be greater. Just think of, just think of Genesis by itself. As you follow the line, as you follow the seed, Abraham, this one who the promise is given to, right? He lies. He's a liar. He's afraid of what might happen. He fails to trust God. Sarah laughs at the promise. Together they are barren. How how are they going to have seed when they can't even have one child? How is the promise going to come when they can't even give birth? Rachel 
is also barren. She is the preferred wife over Leah. Leah is not preferred. Through Leah is the one that the seed comes through. Rachel is barren. She's married to Jacob, who's a deceiver, and his mother helps him with that. Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine. Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law, who pretends to be a prostitute. Joseph, and this this is not going to be very popular with many of us, but Joseph actually begins the story as very arrogant. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, while some of them even want to kill him. And, And that, that family is the family of promise. These people are not heroes. They're not heroines to be emulated. These people are not heroes to be held up as moral examples. No. The story is not ultimately about them. The story is about God. The story is about God and his gracious initiative to reveal his glory and the salvation of this people. A people not worthy, but a people of his own choosing, who he will bless. In fact, the unworthiness, get this, the unworthiness of his people is what makes the glory of his grace the more brilliant The unworthiness of his people is what makes his glory shine the brighter. And the story of this unworthy family of promise that God is determined to bless unfolds in four places. I'm giving you again structural clues here to read the book of Genesis. The story of this blessing, the story of this seed, the the family of promise. <laughs> this story unfolds in four places. It begins in a garden. It begins in Eden. God forms the land and forms man from that land. Now this again, we're going to spend time on that when we get there. But this shows such a central connection between mankind and the land. Man and land are inseparable. Which is, which is one reason, and you need to think about this, you need to know that the destiny of man, the hope of man, is nothing less than a real land. Not a cloud up in the sky in ethereal state, okay? Not a cloud up in outer space, floating. No, the destiny of man, the hope of mankind is found in a real land. The new heavens and the new earth. We were made for a land. You can't separate us from land. Have you ever... Again, soapbox here. Have you, ever, have you ever sensed that? Have you ever sensed that even as you work in the land and as you see things come up out of the land and you actually see produce come from the land that you work and you till and you, you toil over and the product comes up? We were made for a land. 
a land where God's presence and God's blessing dwells. That's what we were made for. The land becomes a centerpiece of the story. The land that Adam and Eve are given, the land that they are formed out of, that they are given, that land is cursed because of sin. And Adam and Eve are exiled from that land. Their exile takes place. They are exiled, sent out east of that land. They are exiled to a place that becomes known as the cradle of civilization, the Fertile Crescent, ancient Mesopotamia, which is identified later as Babylon. Do you know that? After Eden, the first pages of Scripture take place in Babylon. God cleanses there. God cleanses the land in the flood. He cleanses the land by, in a way, uncreating it, destroying it. He takes man off of it to cleanse it of man's sin. We then see in chapter 12, he promises Abraham. What else? He says, a blessing, I'm going to give you a blessing, I'm going to give you a seed, and guess what? It's going to take place in a land, a land that I'm going to give you. He promises Abraham a land where his people will experience his blessing and his presence. This moves the story, after Genesis 12, it moves the story to the land of Canaan, which will become known as the promised land, the land where God will bless his people, or you can think of it this way, return them to the Edenic blessing The land will flow with milk and honey. The land will be a blessing and God will dwell with them in that land. This is the land that Moses brings them to and they refuse to go in. They refuse God's blessing. God eventually delivers the land to them under Joshua's leadership. And then, as you would expect, they pervert their way upon that land that God had given them. They are corrupt. And they corrupt their way in that land. And in the Old Testament, you see the the shape here. They are exiled. And where are they exiled out of that land of promise? Where are they exiled? They are exiled just like Adam and Eve to Babylon. See, the Old Testament is purposefully written, structured. And it focuses on these lands. It gives the whole shape Starts in Eden, goes to Babylon. Then there is the land of promise, which they will eventually be exiled from. But there's one more land. There's one more land. The story of Genesis concludes in the land of Egypt. The land of Egypt. This is where the unworthy family of promise blessing will end up at the end of Genesis. And what is that? They end up in Egypt. Why? Because this is the preparation for their salvation. God actually, we find out in Genesis 15, God is the one who puts them in Egypt. God puts them in Egypt. Why? Because he has plans to rescue them. 
And in that rescuing of them, in that salvation of his people, he will glorify himself in a way that no one, no one can deny. These lands shape our Bibles and they give us the themes of bondage, deliverance, redemption, exile, salvation. The land that God has formed indicates the place where God will bless his people, the place where his glory will reside. You see, the book of Genesis then gives us the shape of the entire story. And this story is about God's gracious initiative to reveal his glory in the salvation of his people. It's as if God put the entire universe into existence for one reason. To magnify His grace and glory. This is very important. God has created all things for one reason to glorify himself and there we have it the story of scripture no not just scripture the story of history because scripture scripture actually informs us it tells us how to understand history. The entire story of all things, the entire story is about God. God and His glory. The story isn't about you or me or the few years we inhabit this planet. Have you ever thought about that, the few years that you inhabit this planet, which seem really important to you? But when you step back and actually look at them in comparison and contrast to eternity, you realize, how, how many years do we have here? 70, maybe 80, maybe 90 years? Do you really think that your 90 years, if you're fortunate, do you really think that your 90 years are the point? No. No, they're not. The point of everything is God and His glory. It's not about you or me or the legacy that we leave. <laughs> there's not going to be any legacy. I'm, 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 I know I say that a lot, but listen, there's not going to be any remembrance of you or me. Maybe my children, when they're old, will have fond memories of me. Maybe my grandchildren will have some sweet memories of me. My great-grandchildren will not know me, probably. And even if they do, they won't have much memory of me. And by the second or third generation, I will be completely forgotten. And even Trinity Church, even if Trinity Church lasts 100 years, I'm just going to be a footnote. Oh, yeah, it was started by some guy named Paul. I don't know. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It's not, about, it's not about me. It's not about us. The story isn't about us. This is God's story. The story of the universe. 
is about God and His goodness. Do you see that? The story of the universe is about God and His goodness, His grace, His glory. And if you have a hard time with that, if you have a hard time getting your mind around that, like, like maybe, well, I struggle thinking that everything's about God. Isn't that kind of selfish of God? Isn't that kind of self-centered of God? I have, a, I have trouble seeing it that way. If you have a hard time with this, then it, it might be an indication that your view of yourself is too big. It might be an indication that your view of yourself has eclipsed your view of God. Your view of yourself is far too big and your view of God is far too small. The story of the universe is about God's goodness, His grace, and His glory. And this story of God's goodness, grace, and glory centers on His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the hero of the story. He's the point of Scripture. He's the culmination. He's the mighty victor. This is why, this is why the New Testament starts by calling into remembrance the book of Genesis. Look at it. Go to, go to Matthew chapter 1. Go to Matthew chapter 1. As the new covenant opens here in Matthew chapter 1. Listen to how it starts. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The book of Matthew starts by telling you the story, the history, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Tying it back to Genesis. Here's what Matthew's saying. That story starts in Genesis. That story, that story, and this story, the story of Jesus, they're connected. You want to find the point of that story? It's found starting right here. Don't believe, believe me? Go to John. Go to John chapter 1. Go to John chapter 1. You guys know this. You all know this, right? How does John chapter 1 start? In the beginning. What does that remind you of? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you hear that? What's John saying? Hey, you know that story that started back in Genesis that's really, really important about the beginning of the universe and all meaning and all purpose and all significance? That story is about Jesus Christ. That's what the story's about. And if you have a hard time seeing that, well, don't be discouraged. You're in a good place. We're going to do our best to make that point every week. If you have a hard time seeing that Jesus is the point of the story, 
that might indicate that your understanding of Scripture, that your view of Scripture is too small, is too narrow. It needs some it needs some help. It needs some life. The story of God's goodness and grace and glory centers on His Son, Jesus Christ. And then get this, the story of God's goodness, grace, and glory centering on His Son, Jesus Christ takes place in the midst of a people. A people not worthy in themselves, but undeserving recipients of promise. The promise of blessing in a land where His glorious presence will dwell. This is our promise. This is our promise. That's what He's promised us. This is our promise as His people. This is our inheritance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's given us an inheritance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see this? He chooses to bless us and when we realize that, out of us comes blessing and praise for Him. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has chosen us, chosen us in Him. In Christ. This is our inheritance. And if you have a hard time seeing the magnitude, the magnificence of this promise, then that might be an indication that your view of the church, your view of God's people, is too weak. Every Sunday we gather here. Why? Because we are God's people, the people of His promise. We receive the promises. His promises of blessing in a land where He will dwell with us. And we are going to that land where we will gather around His throne and we will praise Him and glorify Him and give glory to His grace, to His unimaginable grace. Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all. You are the one who created all. By your will, everything exists. And that brings us back to the beginning, right? Genesis 1-1. Which is where we will pick up next week. Father, you are so good and so gracious. Help us not to forget how good and gracious and glorious you are. Enlarge our view of you through this study in Genesis, enlarge our view of your Son, enlarge our view and understanding of your people and who we are. And I pray through these realities and through growing in our understanding, we will be transformed as we grow in our understanding of the gospel, the good news of your promised blessing 
in your promised seed to bring us to a promised inheritance. Pray all of this for your sake, for your glory, for your name. Amen.